verses 27 to 31, and is entitled, Love for Enemies. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other one also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Thanks, Heather. As, uh, yeah, we come to our final instalment in the series that we've been doing, uh, Reasons for God. Uh, looking at uh, the this question of you know, why the church is responsible for so much injustice and why Christians are such hypocrites. Uh, before we tackle that, let's uh, talk to God and uh, yeah, bring our thoughts and our hearts before him now. Gracious Father, thank you for uh, your truth. We thank you for Jesus and for not only his teaching that we just read then, but also his life. We pray that that might impact us uh, now as we think through this uh, question of why there is uh, so much uh, injustice even at the hands of Christians uh, and why Christians are so hypocritical. And we ask that you would uh, yeah, help us to reflect on that with wisdom and humility. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in Ireland, in 1999... Uh, a priest, Father Eugene Green, was arrested and imprisoned for raping and molesting 26 boys over 27 years. Uh, eight of those boys actually ended up taking their own lives because of it. Uh, following this, the uh, Irish government investigated the extent of paedophile priests throughout Irish schools and institutions, and since then there has been more than 140,000 victims compensated. Compounding this abuse has actually been the uh, secrecy and the cover-ups of the institutionalised church, uh, church that often followed. This uh, terrible abuse uh, came to light not just in Ireland but uh, around the world, including here in Australia. Indeed, the most extensive and detailed investigation into institutional child abuse, the Royal Commission, uh, happened from 2012. In this, it was found that religious bodies were uh, responsible for a majority of child sexual abuse in institutions. Of the 42,000 calls handled, 26,000 letters and emails received, and over 8,000 private sessions held, 2,575 cases, of which a majority concern a religious body, have been referred to the authorities, including the police. This is simply appalling, and it does nothing absolutely nothing to commend Christianity, does it? As uh, the New York Times writer uh, perceptibly penned, no atheist or anti-clericalist, nor Voltaire or Ingersoll or Twain could have invented a story so perfectly calculated to discredit the message of the gospel. This is a disaster, a disaster the church has brought on itself an evil for which the church alone is to blame. And on the back of this, 
and the many other monumental stuff-ups and failings of the church and Christians down through the years, is it any wonder that many think the church as the cause of much evil and injustice? Uh, The great pacifist Gandhi famously said of Christianity, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. And because of the hypocrisy of Christians that he saw, he struggled to take Jesus seriously. So how might we respond to this kind of objection? How might we answer the questions, why is the church responsible for so much injustice? Why are Christians such hypocrites? Can I suggest that the answer is pretty simple? The response is pretty simple. might be pretty uncomfortable, but it's simple. Firstly, admit it. That the church and Christians and we ourselves are terrible hypocrites. And secondly, point to Jesus. Point to his goodness, why we all need him. Point to his goodness and his good influence in the world. So that's where we're going. First up, admit it. The church and Christians, we just need to admit it. We, we need to admit that we, we're terribly inconsistent and hypocritical. Uh, in his excellent book, Bullies and Saints, uh, John Dixon takes a, an honest look at the good and evil uh, of Christian history. And he sets up uh, the book by comparing Jesus and his teachings to a beautiful piece of music played perfectly, particularly uh, with Jesus' emphasis on love and human dignity, because Jesus' take on those things, on love and human dignity, uh, they are unparalleled and they are glorious. So when it comes to love, Jesus taught, as we read earlier, it's staggering. We'll read it again. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other one also. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. These may be familiar teachings to many of us, but they are incredible. No other moral teacher in antiquity teaches things like this. No one. Jesus stands alone in pushing the idea of unconditional love, love that is not dependent on the loveliness of the one to be loved, to love your enemy, to love those, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who mistreat you. This is entirely Jesus. Entirely from Jesus. And while we might balk at how hard it might be to actually do those things, everyone's heard of it, right? Everyone's heard that. Love your enemy. Yeah. And everyone thinks it's a good idea. Everyone thinks it's not just good, but praiseworthy. Why? Well, because for Jesus, this wasn't just sentimental teaching. Uh, the, the Jewish scholar, Professor David Flusser, an expert on the life of Jesus, and interestingly not a Christian, he wrote of Jesus. It was not simply his total way of life that urged Jesus to express loving devotion to sinners. This inclination was deeply linked with the purpose of his message. From the beginning until his death on the cross, the preaching of Jesus was in turn linked to his own way of life. Love for your enemies wasn't something that Jesus just said. It's something he did. It was a reflection of the entire course of his life. He loved his enemies, even as they unfairly and brutally pinned him to a cross. He loved them. Even as they spat on him, 
He prayed for them. As they laughed at him in his shame and in his nakedness, he sought God's forgiveness for them. As they dug themselves deeper in their evil and their wicked treatment of him, he died to save them from it. There is no one who taught and lived and died the message of unconditional love like Jesus. No one. No one. He beautifully outplays everyone in history when it comes to love. And also, when it comes to human dignity. Right from the start of the Bible, uh, it says that all people are made in the image of God. That means that there is inherent value and worth and dignity in each and every human being. Something that everyone wants to say is true, but is not self-evidently true. It's an idea that's founded and grounded in the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus, who actually takes it a step further when he teaches this. He says, at one, uh, one time, he says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, which was a common Jewish act of worship in the temple at the time, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Jesus says we can't claim to honour God if we're dishonouring one of his offspring, our siblings. Jesus says to dignify God, to dignify God is to dignify people. That people are made in God's image means they're all more than just inherently valuable. They're they're to be treated with a level of dignity the same way that you would treat God, the eternal God. So not only are all people eternally, inherently equal, each of them is of infinite value. That's what Jesus says. This is the legacy of Jesus' teaching and his life that he leaves in the world. That every human being is of infinite and equal worth and dignity. And by willingly giving himself, giving his own infinitely valuable life over to death on a cross for the whole world, he beautifully proves it. There is no one No one who taught and lived and died the message of unconditional love and infinite and equal worth of all people like Jesus. Nobody. He beautifully outplays everyone in history when it comes to love and affirming human dignity. But the simple reality is that all too often the church and Christians who bear his name fall far, far short of his beautiful tune. The church and Christians have trashed those beautiful notes of unconditional love and human dignity, like the rampant child abuse and cover-ups uncovered by the Royal Commission, like the church's participation in the stolen generations of the last century, of Aboriginal children forcibly removed from their families and abused in church institutions like actively participating in the African slave trade, like the Crusades of the second century. These and all the other atrocious things that the church and Christians have done in the name of Christ down through the years, they are a blight on Christianity. And they are worthy of disgust, and we should be more than sympathetic to those who genuinely struggle with the injustice and the violence done in Jesus' name, and who are drawn to think that Christians are not just hypocritical, but that the church is evil. And so our first response should be just to own it. To not shy away from the injustice and the evil, but to admit it. Perhaps even lean lean in further to it. Own more than those who raise the objection know themselves. 
This, I think, is one of the great strengths of John Dixon's book. Now, far from skirting around or minimising the appalling behaviour of the church and Christians at times, he leans into the details to, de- to admit their faults and failings. Uh, his opening chapters, they are a scarifying walk through the Crusades. How the church not only sanctioned wars to violently take the Holy Land from Muslim occupation, but he notes how it was religiously motivated. He quotes from a leader of the First Crusade after they sacked Jerusalem on the 15th of July in uh, uh, 1099, who wrote this. Wonderful sights were to be seen. Some of our men cut off the heads of their enemies. Others shot them with arrows so that they fell from the towers. Others tortured them longer by casting them into flames. Piles of heads and feet were to be seen in the street of the city. It was a just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers since it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. And if that wasn't bad enough, Dixon notes Raymond, this guy, uh, goes on to tell us that the next day, 16th of July, the Crusaders held a Thanksgiving service in Jerusalem's Church of the Holy Sepulchre, just 500 metres away from the site of the massacre the day before, where they rejoiced and exalted and sang a new song to the Lord. Now, as much as we might hate to admit it, these are our tribe. As much as we uh, might not be personally responsible for these atrocities or for the many other injustices and abuses perpetrated by the church down through the years in the name of Christ, as much as we might hate to admit it, we're connected to them. They're on our team. They're in our tribe. And so the best thing to say after admitting to the injustice and the the abuse is to just say sorry. Admit that they failed to sing the beautiful song of Jesus. It was ugly. And we're sorry. And admit that we're prepared to face whatever reparations may come our way as a result. After all, royal commissions... And the various authorities, they are God's agents to commend what is good and to punish what is evil, especially if that evil is within the church. We need to admit it and say sorry. Which is also the best way forward when people accuse Christians and individual Christians of hypocrisy, maybe even us as well, of holding others to a different standard than ourselves, of preaching love your neighbour but in the end mercilessly judging others. If it's true then own it and say sorry. No buts, no qualifications, just, yep, we are, I am. Sorry. This is not what Jesus would want me to do. This is not what Jesus would want any of his people to do. He calls us to love people unconditionally and to treat every single person as equal and worthy of dignity. And so when that doesn't happen, when we end up judging people for the way they dress or the way they talk or a particular ideology or sexual identity that they hold to, the politics that they hold to, and we distance ourselves from them, demonise them, mercilessly poke holes in their inconsistencies, it's worth remembering Jesus' teaching. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. And then 
you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It might be that Jesus is calling us a hypocrite way before anybody else is. Or maybe he's just doing it through someone else. And at that point, let's not get hung up on the shame of perhaps a non-Christian calling us out, but thank God that, thank Jesus that he's using them to help us to sing his tune better. And so admit it, say sorry. No buts, no qualifications, just I'm sorry. And then if people are still willing to listen to us, point to Jesus. Which brings us to our second point. Point to Jesus. Point to his goodness. Point to his good influence in the world. Because the simple fact is, just like the rest of the world, the church and Christians, we need Jesus. We need him. Precisely because we're all terribly good at being inconsistent and failing to keep our own standards, let alone God's. We need help. In answer to the objections, why is the church responsible for so much injustice and why are Christians such hypocrites? Without any hint of excusing the injustice and the hypocrisy then, we've got to not only admit to the terrible things that we've done, we've got to admit to our need for forgiveness and then admit to the fact that anything good done by us or the church, it's not because of us, it's because of Jesus. It's interesting that although some might say Christianity promotes violence and abuse, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, that intense symbol of violence and abuse, actually humiliates violence and abuse and hypocrisy. Uh, Violence is uh, the use of power by the strong to hurt the weak, right? But as the Christian writer Rebecca McLaughlin observes in her book, uh, at the cross, the most beautiful man who ever lived submitted to the most brutal death ever died to save the powerless. The skewering of violence at the cross speaks to our most fundamental problem, which is not lack of education or democracy or opportunity, but the gruesome reality the Bible calls sin. And the strange claim of Jesus' resurrection offers us hope that evil will not ultimately triumph, and that anyone who gives up his or her life to follow Christ will find it. This belief, when drunk of deeply, motivates action. Indeed, it motivated Christians down through the centuries to exercise the kind of love and respect for human dignity that happily harmonises with the life, the death and teachings of Jesus. So, for instance, from the first and second century, early Christianity was actually mocked by outsiders for its appeal to women. You know, one philosopher uh, mocking that uh, Christians want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonourable and stupid, only slaves, women and little children. The status of women and children was actually raised in church, not only because Jesus was stunningly countercultural in his relationships with women and children, He consistently weaves women into his preaching as examples of faith. He elevates women and children as moral examples. He he talks to women sometimes exclusively. This is remarkable in the adult-dominated culture at the time. He deliberately searches out and heals women and children. And on top of all this, women are the first that Jesus chooses to appear to after rising from the dead. Jesus' treatment of women and children showed their equal status before God. It's only because of Jesus that the early church thought likewise and continues to think likewise 
So any love and respect of women and children that we might see in church, then it's only because of Jesus. What's more, freedom of religion, something that our society and we generally hold to as dear, it only became a thing in the world after the Roman Emperor, Constantine, became a Christian. He encouraged, he was encouraged to see that Jesus' goal of love, that it is love, love for God and love for the neighbour, for your neighbour. And so he reasoned that religion can never be a matter of force, an idea that persisted, that has persisted, at least in the Western world, that, that a basic human right is freedom of religion. Something that if the church champions, it does so only under Jesus' tutelage of unconditional love and inherent human dignity. What's more, from the 4th century, Christians sought to create places where the sick and poor could be cared for, places that we now call hospitals. And the key driving reason is Jesus' command to love people. A dude called Gregory of uh, Nazianus, an influential theologian of the time, he wrote a massive essay totaled on love for the poor that was connected with the construction of a huge welfare complex, the first of its kind, kind in uh, the 4th century AD. Uh, the first of its kind. And in his essay, he reaches his main point. He says, We must regard charity as the first and greatest of the commands, since it is the very sum of the law and the prophets. And its most vital part, I find, is the love of the poor, along with compassion and sympathy for a fellow man. We must then open our hearts to all the poor and to all those who are victims of disasters from whatever cause. It's Jesus who taught that charity, or love, is the greatest of the commandments, since it's the very sum of the law and the prophets. And so it's Jesus who stands behind the very existence of hospitals, the very existence of welfare for the poor. Wherever we might see Christians in the church or anyone caring for the poor and the sick and the weak and the vulnerable, you know why? It's because of Jesus. It's only because of Jesus. Not because of the superior morality of Christians. That can't be the case, given how much Christians in the church have stuffed up, uh, stuffed up in big and small ways down through the years. The only one that we can point to with any confidence, the only one that we can point to for hope in a world full of Violence and injustice and hypocrisy is Jesus. So as people come to us with legitimate objections, why is the church responsible for so much injustice? Why are Christians such hypocrites? Our best response is to admit to our faults, say sorry, and then point to Jesus. Point to his goodness and to his good influence in the world. And I'm going to pray that that might be part of the way that we will respond. Gracious Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he is magnificent. Thank you that uh, he sings the most beautiful tune in his teachings and his life of raising unconditional love and human dignity to the level that it should be. Father, we are sorry as individuals and as a church for the appalling way that we have abused the knowledge of Jesus and not loved people unconditionally and not dignified people. 
and have seen appalling injustice and abuse perpetrated on many. For that we are sorry. Please help us as we rub shoulders with those in the world who may share similar objections or objections to the church and the hypocritical nature of Christians to just admit to it, to acknowledge it's not what Jesus wants, it never was, to point to him and our need, Christians and non-Christians alike, our need for him, for the forgiveness that you offer in him and the goodness that he promises as we follow in his ways. Please help us to be sensitive to those in the world who struggle to admit our faults and point to Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.